Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Jed Talks. My name is Jed Shepard, and I am your host. On today's episode, I'm really pleased to announce my guest is Tom Eberhardt, and he is the writer-director of my favourite film of all time. You guys have heard me talk about this film so, so much. He's a writer-director of Night of the Comet. Tom, thank you so much for being here. Well, it's my pleasure. I'll go anywhere to talk about myself. <laughs> That's great. Um, and I've got a bit of a surprise for you in a little while, but we'll, before we get to that, um, we'll talk a little bit about how you came to be making films in the first place. What was your inception in, into the filmmaking industry? Well, it was a, a bit of a long trail. I, there was, first of all, there was no, there was no history in my family in this regard at all. My dad was a plumber, my mom was an assembly line worker, and that was kind of uh, my family going back probably for decades and decades. And uh, I was in school and didn't know what I wanted to do. I liked drama, but I knew I wasn't gonna be an actor. And so I, when I went into college, I went into uh, radio, television, film at Long Beach State, which is not, um, known uh, as a particularly hefty um, film school, but Steven Spielberg went there and oh, we wow. have something in common. We were not only there at the same time, but I worked on a couple of his movies <clears throat> that he oh, was wow. making and we both dropped out at about the same time. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And anyway, I, I, I started, uh, uh, I was lucky enough to go to work for public television in this, uh, in this country. And um, I was an editor, and it's actually to this day the thing I love most is editing. And I, while at PBS, I backed into directing because I was being given such junk to cut. And then I backed into writing because I was being given such junk to direct. <laughs> and uh, uh, then it turned out and writing was the thing that I liked the least. And it turned out that that's what I was in the most demand as. I was at PBS for about 10 years. Mm -hmm. And then I realized it was time to get out. I had to move on. In fact, I probably stayed at the fair a little too long there. And of course, you know, it's the classic thing. Yeah, this is swell. But what I really want to direct, do is direct features. So um, I was sitting around one day and uh, a friend of mine from college mentioned he was a drama coach and he mentioned that he had a drama student whose husband owned a modular furniture factory and uh, she was taking drama and uh, he was willing to invest some money in, in a movie to uh, put her in. And so that evolved into a real kind of Ed Wood affair. And <laughs> Was, which film was that? Which film was, was that? Uh, I used to say I'll never talk about it, but <laughs> with, you know, with Jeffrey Katzenberg over at Disney said something to me at one point. He said, Tom, this stuff never goes away. Yeah. And boy, was he right. Yeah. It was a movie called Soul Survivor. We did it back oh. in 81 or 82. Yeah, no, I love Soul Survivor. Is, is that the one? You, so you're, you're not a fan of, of Soul Survivor. I, I really, really enjoy it. Well, you know, when I, I went to London to do a movie um, in the late 80s, early 90s, I forget exactly what it was, a really fun movie did there with Michael Caine and Ben Kingsley. And I arrived in London and I had done Night of the Comet and it had been a, a success and surprised everybody, mm -hmm. including me. And uh, <laughs> I, somebody, some one of the, one of the, uh, the uh, tabloids wanted to come in and do an interview with me. And uh, I think uh, Orion was uh, handling the movie. I set that up. And the first thing the guy asked me was, you did Soul Survivor, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then when I got back there, then, then there was IMDb. You can't erase stuff off of IMDb. And you, you can't erase it, but... You can't erase it, but anybody in the world with a computer can put anything on your IMDb site, and then you can't get rid of it. That's true. My, my IMDb uh, uh, page, I never did anything. I've never touched it. I've never gone yeah. in to do anything. And suddenly, I looked at it like a year ago or so, and I was, I was amazed. They knew <laughs> everything about me. They do. And, 
And of course, the sole survivor was stuck right there in the middle of everything. You would be surprised, Tom. A, a lot of people I know absolutely love that film. Absolutely love the film. I I really like it. I mean, it's. I know it was the first thing you basically did, but that obviously spawned. I, I think a lot of the films that came out a little bit later, in, in, including Final Destination, I, th- I think is inspired by Soul Survivor very, very well, I much like so. To, I would yeah. like to, you know, it's nice to say that. I'm amazed that, of course, it's kind of true if you go in and uh, read reviews mm-hmm. uh, of uh, the movies I've done, people tend to either like them a lot or really hate them. There's nothing in between. Yeah. It's like one star or four, four and a half or five stars, but no two or three stars. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was surprised to see that a lot of people were looking at Soul Survivor and some people were taking me to task. Uh, but anyway, it was not a pleasant experience. For oh, me. really? Wow. Okay. But it, what it did was show me that I could sit down and write a script. I'd never written a feature script before. I'd written mm-hmm. a lot of stuff. Well, at PBS, but those were all documentaries and, and uh, a few kind of like after school special kinds of things that were educational stuff like, you know, aimed at middle schoolers and how they could improve their life if they knew all about math. Right. <laughs> we did that kind of stuff. And, uh, and in fact, one of those, uh, one of those, uh, doing one of those little things was where I, uh, got the idea for Night of the Comet. Soul Survivor came out, and I guess it did okay. They didn't spend much money on it, mm-hmm. uh, practically anything. And uh, it, it played in drive-in movie theaters at a time when there were still drive-in movie theaters. And so I guess it did. I mean, it wasn't a big hit or anything, and it, mm-hmm. and it sunk. And then with home video and like that, it kind of percolated back up to the surface. Yeah. And like that. So anyway, the best thing about it was that it showed me I could do something. I could do it uh, on a really small budget if I had to. And uh, which brings me to Night of the Comet, which was actually, I guess I can't say it was my first movie anymore. So it was, it was like <laughs> But I have um, I have so many so many questions uh, for you about Night of the Comet. So what was the first kind of moment you knew you had? A story for, for Night of the Comet. Where did it come from? What were your influences in kind of writing that story from the very well, start? Well, the influences were simple. Um, after I finished Soul Survivor and uh, I, my last day in the cutting room, I walked back, walked out, never looked back. And uh, uh, after that, I said, you know, I'm only going to write something that I'm interested in that I'm really connected to because I wasn't really particularly a sole survivor. I liked the concept a lot. And I like, you know, this kind of fly by the seat of your pants kind of shooting. Uh, but I was writing it for the wife of a furniture manufacturer. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and I was fired off the show for cutting her scenes down. <laughs> Oh my, oh my. <laughs> I was caught red-handed doing that. And I went in and my key didn't fit the lock in the door one morning. No but anyway, I sat outside the door and yelled like a cat locked out of the house. But anyway, after that, I decided that I was only going to write stuff that I I liked, that I was mm-hmm. connected to. And I was just yeah. going to see the hell with it. I knew I was a commercial writer. And I knew I wanted to write something commercial. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, I was only going to write something that I had a feel for. And uh, I always liked, when I was a kid, empty city movies. And there were quite a few of them around when I was a kid. I I was a kid. This would be me being a kid and going to the movies starting at about age eight or nine Mm -hmm. on a regular basis every weekend. And um, uh, the first episode, the pilot episode of Twilight Zone was uh, empty. Well, it was an empty town back lot yeah yeah earl holloman in, a, in an episode called where is everybody yeah where i love that episode yeah it's great town just empty yeah and then there was a, a really weirdo movie with harry belafonte and inger stevens called the world the flesh and the devil i have no idea wow. what that title related <laughs> to because nothing about it in the movie but it was harry belafonte and an empty New York City, which was quite stark. It was mm-hmm. all a spot point movie, and it was quite stark. 
my gosh, I forget who directed it. Anyway, Inger Stevens, Harry Belafonte was black. Inger Stevens was a little snowball, as blonde as you could be. And they were the last two people as far as they knew on earth. And so they were kind of trying to get together. They needed each other. But it was a whole, I, I think that movie was done in like 53 or 54, maybe a little later. Mm-hmm. And um, it was all, it, basically it was about uh, racial relationships at, at the core of the movie. And um, the, and then I saw a movie when I was probably about 10 and it was in re-release because I think it had been done in uh, 54 called Target Earth. Oh. Are you familiar with that I'm not movie? familiar with that one, no. There's two movies called Target Earth. One okay. was made later in the 50s or early 60s or something. This Target Earth. If people want to want to see where neither the comic Yeah, I'll track it down. Yeah. This movie, Target Earth with Richard Denning, uh, uh, basically an American TV actor, B-movie actor at the time. Uh, he had the lead in it. I forget who the young lady was who was the lead actress but anyway mm-hmm. the first 10 minutes of that movie is riveting and okay. i saw it when i was 10 years old or so scared the bejesus out of me and uh and if you look at the first 10 minutes you, you don't really have to look at any more of the movie just the first yeah. 10 minutes because after after about 10 minutes creativity sort of flies out right. the window and becomes okay. you know more people talking at length about the problem <laughs> Uh, but the first 10 minutes is just seat of the pants filmmaking. The guy who directed it was a film cutter. He was an editor. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's all done. I'm sure it was done with a Army surplus IMO, 35 millimeter IMO camera. And they went out and they shot in city streets, downtown L.A. Uh, this young lady wakes up. There's nobody around. And it's like this where is everybody or growing panic and like that. And it was just riveting. Yeah. I mean, you can watch it. Look at your watch. I will, I, I will watch it. Yeah. Reel. Okay. First reel. And then afterwards when Richard Denny enters the picture and they, and they are now hooked up as, as two of the remaining people around, um, they start talking too much and then <laughs> talking to each other too much. And then, they had uh, the entire alien invasion consisted of a very um, cornball robot that was supposed to be a robot army, but they only had enough money for one robot. <laughs> I heard the, the producer of the movie said, you can always tell when a movie is like a bargain basement movie, when you see the producer and the director's cars featured in the movie. <laughs> oh, no. Anyway, that, that, that movie, and I just like the haunting feel of an empty city. I have since yeah. I was a, a kid. And uh, I didn't know what I was going to do for a script after Soul Survivor. I didn't know. I didn't have any connections in Hollywood. I had no way. I just said, I just got to get it out of my system. Mm -hmm. So I was having lunch. I mean, there's a a story I've told a lot. I was having lunch with a couple of girls that were in one of these uh, PBS educational things that we were shooting. And we were having lunch. And I asked them. I just put the question to them. Girls, what would happen if one of you or both of you woke up one morning thinking it was just a regular morning. You went out the door and everybody was gone. Nobody was around. And uh, not to my surprise, really, because they were, they were both 14. Um, they saw no downside to the whole thing. Everything, <laughs> it, the world was suddenly just full of possibilities that they could do everything, anything they wanted to go and get any kind, any clothes, anything they wanted to drive cars, anything. And there was like no lament for people who were gone now. I mean, no sorrow or anything. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't lead them in that direction, but I just thought it was interesting that they no mention of best friends or anything, you know, it was just yippee. And then I said, well, what if there were bad guys around? And I didn't know at that point what, who the bad guys were going to be. I said, well, what if there were bad guys around? There's no police. There's no army. There's no nothing. It's just you. And they said, we get guns. You can get guns. There's <laughs> gun stores all over the place. You can get guns. Now, these girls have never touched a gun in their life. But that didn't stop them. So, you know, those that's like the major element in Night of the Comet. There is, except for Kelly Maroney has this one 
really nice monologue that she delivers about midway through the movie. They're sitting on the hood of the car. Um, yeah. And Kelly has this little uh, uh, lament about uh, a boy that was going to ask her out. And, yeah, I love that. Uh, I guess that's not happening now and like that. And I actually wrote that speech. This is one of uh, my first tip off that Night of the Comet might t- be taking on a life of its own. Mm-hmm. Um, she did that speech and I wrote the speech to be um, sort of tongue in cheek. I mean, well, there was a lot of tongue in cheek in the movie. Uh, wrote it to be tongue in cheek, but Kelly... Um, decided that she was just going to, she was going to throw herself into it. It was a nice monologue for her. Really and good. She I love herself that. into it. Yeah. So we go, and when we finished the movie, we went out to screen it. Oh, we screened it here at, uh, there, because I'm in Santa Fe now. Screened it in Hollywood at the Director's Guild. It was an industry screening. And, um, and as I thought, there it was all adults. And as I thought, there was a, there were chuckles. I mean, I knew that there were going to be chuckles. There were chuckles all the way through the movie, and some outright laughter because it was clearly a parent uh, parody of uh, of uh, teenagers long before. Uh, uh, oh gosh, like scream and how um, long before all that stuff came, yeah. came along. And so I said, okay, well, this is all working. And people are slapping me on the back and telling me what a good movie it was and like that. And I'm saying, yeah, yeah, okay, sure. And then uh, <laughs> then they had, a, they had a sneak, not preview, but sneak release in Las Vegas, Nevada. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> the people in Las, I mean, it wasn't just like a sneak preview. They opened it in Las Vegas just to do a test of it because it was a mixed genre movie and they yeah. were scared stiff of it. Uh, Atlantic was. And uh, they liked it. They liked the movie a lot. So did their PR people, liked it a lot. But they were just scared because it was mixed genre and it was, they thought it was a kiss of death. Mm-hmm. So we went to, my wife and I drove to Las Vegas to see it was playing in a drive-in theater and in a mall theater. And we went to the mall theater to see it. And the mall theater was packed with kids. I had never seen it with an audience with kids and uh, young people. And Christy and I were sitting there and up came this speech of Kelly's. And we heard this. Wow. And we turned around and there was these three girls behind us and, and two of them had, were in tears. <laughs> and I said, oh, man, okay. Wow. And that's when I realized that I'd like to say that I planned it all this way. I had a comment we walked a tightrope. And um, I don't know if it's a tightrope that could be walked again. We walked, we walked a tightrope. Actually, I have a granddaughter who's 10 and mm-hmm. we were out visiting them. and. We watched the movie while we were there, partly because I knew I'd be doing this. I had to refresh my memory. Oh, great. <laughs> so we watched it with, uh, with Violet, and uh, she just curled up, and, you know, she likes zombie movies and stuff. And she watched it, and she hung right in there with it. And her one complaint at the end was there wasn't enough zombies. But <laughs> I, I suddenly realized that the movie worked on on two planes. I don't want to go too cerebral about it, mm-hmm. but the movie worked on on two planes. There was a plane of where your tongue was in your cheek, mm-hmm. and you tried not to make it obvious to like uh, twelve to fourteen year olds, twelve to fifteen year olds. You didn't want to stick your tongue in your cheek so mm-hmm. far that everybody knew that's what you were doing, and. Uh, she watched it and she bought right into it, even at this late date, she did. And it occurred to me while I was watching it with her, because there's been this whole discussion about it, retro discussion about it. is it a really a zombie movie? Mm-hmm. Well, I never said it was. I still don't think it is. But it occurred to me <laughs> what it is, is actually an adventure film. Yeah. Because she was, the kids who watched it originally in 84, I was... I was absolutely positive they bought into it on an adventure level. It was an adventure for them where everything turned out okay, more or less at the end. 
And that's what my grandmother, granddaughter bought into it as an adventure film. But you couldn't sell an adventure film. You had to sell it as a scary movie. And you know what was a funny thing when it was released? I mean, this is Atlantic releasing had done Valley Girl. And mm-hmm. the two producers of Valley Girl, Wayne Crawford and Andy Lane, were my producers on Night of the Comet. And Night of the Comet was Atlantic's first national release. They had just regionally released, you know, right, bicycle okay. prints around the around the country. And it was their first national release, so they were using it to experiment on. But they but they were still bothered by this mixed genre thing. And it had two commercials that ran on TV. One ran as I recall, they were rerunning episodes of The Twilight Zone at that time in L.A. around 6.30 in the afternoon or something like that. And, and they bought all that time. And it was like all the same visuals. And there was this narrator, Night of the Comet. And then later on uh, in the evening, they had the same visuals, but they had a different narrator saying, Night of the Comet. (laughs) They just didn't know. Somewhere around here, I've got both of those commercials on VHS. I think I've seen some of them on on, on YouTube. Um, Yeah. One thing that I want to say about the the, the comet that I love the most is obviously the the two leads, Kelly Maroney, Catherine Mary Stewart. Yeah. Unbelievable. And I believe they're the most underrated, like, genre actors that are. And and this this is the surprise that I want to kind of surprise you with. Um, you'll see in just a second. <laughs> oh, what is it? Oh, no! Oh, no! <laughs> Kathy, Kathy and I have actually been talking. Oh, we've that's been good. Talking, and we've been talking. This is what COVID-19 has done to everybody. You take your thoughts and say, oh, who can I email now? <laughs> who can I talk to now? And Kathy beat me to the punch. She actually... Uh, she actually uh, got a hold of me. She actually got a hold of me for this last go round of, oh. of uh, chatting and talking. And yeah. <laughs> well, you helped me out with that audition, which was so great. He literally wrote a script for me. Oh. These, first of all, this pandemic crap that we have to do. <laughs> you know, they're like, okay, so we want you to, to audition for this thing, self tape, oh. and and. Plus, you need to write a script and give us content, and we may or may not bless you with your presence. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, that's what that's what uh, that's what Kathy was saying, and I think she's right. She says pretty soon we're going to be asked to shoot our own movie as an audition and <laughs> turn it yeah. in. Yeah, they're doing that already. Hey, Kelly. Hey, Kelly. For Hi. those for those Hi. listening on the podcast, um, Kenny Maroney and Catherine Mary Stewart are now in the Zoom with with Tom. Um, Eberhardt and um, this is great this is amazing for me like it's crazy um, this is so much fun for us because yeah. oh Tom because Tom I, 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 I've I, met um, these ladies in real life as well we hung out we had oh, some my, I've met them in real life once too <laughs> yeah you've done it too yeah and they're the, like the best the, the, the absolutely best people um, so and this is this is great because now I can ask you about how why you pick them for for this, their particular roles in You'd in um, <laughs> is it an obvious? <laughs> yeah, Wayne, <laughs> Wayne, and Andy. Oh, we lost we lost Wayne. Bless his heart. He passed uh, a few years back. But Wayne and Andy, first of all, they hated me from the get go. They hated it <laughs> because they knew that I was making this movie with the profits from Ballet Girl. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> hidden from them. <laughs> so, so they were not only they got you know they had a, a producing deal with Atlantic. So Atlantic said, "Here, here's a guy that's never made a feature film before and only directed educational movies. So, go to it." And they just really they didn't uh, bless their hearts. They didn't understand the script. I Why mean, are you busting their hearts all the time? Is what I want to know. <laughs> I hardly understood it. I mean, the script revealed something new to me almost every day we were shooting it, but they didn't. And anyway, um, I was pretty much following their lead. They picked the DP. They picked my first assistant director, both great guys. And my editor, who I became lifelong friends with, who actually ended up cutting through more films for me. 
and the production designer, John Muto, they just, they, these were just all presented to me as a fait accompli. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, but those two girls, that's where I come in. And <laughs> I said, first of all, they've got to look like sisters. They've got to look like sisters, like they're from the same gene pool. <laughs> that time, Kathy was brunette. And we interviewed one actress who was um, a kind of an up-and-comer at the time, and she was blonde. Mm -hmm. And Kelly was blonde. And I said, okay, good. And then we we saw Kathy. She was a brunette. And we saw her with, oh. Heather Langenkamp, wasn't it? Name? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was yeah, Heather yeah. Langenkamp. Yeah. Wow. And I said, okay, guys. We'll have either Kathy and her or Kelly and her. That's my decision. Firm on that one. So I wound up with Kathy and Kelly. <laughs> I remember that audition day. I remember that day where it was probably callbacks by that time. Mm -hmm. And you put me with Heather and I saw Kelly going in with, I don't know who you auditioned with, Kelly. I don't remember her name. Yeah. Who was the oh. ice skater? She was uh, an ice skater. Nancy Kerrigan. No, 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 she was, she was, she was, but she was an ice skater. She had done an ice skating movie. She had been a, oh. not a Bond girl exactly, but kind of a Bond, a second banana girl in one of the Bond films and like that. Uh -huh. Anyway, she came in, oh, God, I remember her name, but she was paired with Kelly. I said, I said, okay, good match. And, and Kathy and Heather were a good match. So... Wayne and Andy huddled and they came back and said, okay, we'll take Kathy and we'll take Kelly. <laughs> and I said, okay, done. That's what I was thinking in the first place. <laughs> yeah, when we came back, we had we were called back to the studio, as I recall, and to get just some photos, some family photos taken. Yeah. And I think that was the first time I saw you, Kelly. Um, and I was like, time. oh, what? <laughs> Okay, I'll go with that. What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've seen those photos. I think I saw that online somewhere. Those original I photos. I said something about it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so cool. But anyway, I think a lot of what what Night of the Comet ultimately grew up to be was really a do uh, to these two uh, young ladies. Oh. They just. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. I wasn't gonna. I wasn't gonna try and direct them too much because I figured they both had more experience than me. So I'm just gonna build, <laughs> I'm just gonna build a little corral around them yeah. and kind of communicate with grunts and groans and uh, yeah, things like that. And because I just didn't feel like I had the chops to be saying, "Now, Kathy, listen to me." And uh, there was a calm drama coach involved at one point. Roy London has also passed away. And uh, Wayne and Andy were sure they needed a drama coach, and I was sure they didn't. <laughs> yeah. so, so we pulled them out of the drama coach's uh, clutches. And I went to, I, I continued to work with Roy. Yeah, wow. Roy was renowned. He was, he was renowned. He has not, not when we, not when we first met him, but subsequently. Yeah. 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 When yeah. Gina, um, Gina um, Davis won her Academy Award, she thanked him. Oh, wow. And I just knew, I thought, this. I I want to still, you know, because Wayne said, you still want to work with it, I'll still still pay for it. I said, are you kidding? Of course I do. <laughs> I, I always like to work with a coach. A coach can only make you better. They yeah. see things that you're not going to see. They're going to, you know... Well, Kelly, Tom was just saying how great great you were and how he knew that the, the movie was working because some girls in the cinema were crying at, at your uh, speech about the um the, the boy you left behind. Um, it, was during, it was during the, it wasn't a sneak preview, it was a sneak release in Las Vegas. And they opened it in Las Vegas as if it was opening nationally. So nobody knew that it was a test. Ah. Christian, I drove to Las Vegas, I was saying already. And uh, the, Kelly's speech on the hood of the police car was behind me for this. And, oh, and another thing that I realized it was working on two levels. We had just, my wife and I had just moved. And uh, we were in a new, uh, a new neighborhood. And we were going out and we needed a babysitter. So babysitter got recommended and in walked the stereotypical 15-year-old uh, babysitter. And I had my one sheet, Night of the Comet, still have his hand right there, 
Yeah, oh, I've got one as well. <laughs> and she, she came in and she saw the poster and said, I saw that movie. She said, that was so scary. And I said, I said, well, it's supposed to be kind of fun. Too. She said, well, yeah, but the scariest thing is something like that could really happen. <laughs> we have to wait till the next comic comes around. Yeah. Yeah, it was, you know, it was, um, it was when I realized that that we had all kept our tongues not so far in our cheek that that particular audience could see it or they would know that we were actually making fun of them, kind of. But it was supposed to be a B movie. I mean, that's what I started off to make, a B movie. That's what mm -hmm. I wish we could have done it in black and white, but Lasagna couldn't go for it. Oh, really? Is that what you wanted to do originally, in black and white? Wow, that would have been interesting. I did. I, I did, because I just wanted, I mean, we didn't have much money to make it. We had. There's been some dispute over the budget, but I'm telling you, I saw the budget. It was stuck right in front of my face by <laughs> Andy Lane. And I thought... we. Nobody told me what we were going to be making the movie for. I just said, yeah, I'll make the movies. Yeah. We'll show up. And uh, Andy came in after we'd been in prep for about two weeks, and he said, well, here's your budget. And I was thinking that it could be done for about 1.1, 1.2 million. And uh, in walked this budget for $700,000. Now, people have heard all kinds of things. There's all kinds of things on the internet. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure they might have heard them from credible sources, but such is the world of low-budget independent filmmaking. Those budgets, the truth is never known on yeah. those budgets. But I'm telling you what I had to work with. They may have budgeted it for... 1.2, 1.3 million dollars, but I only got 700,000. <laughs> yeah. I was I thinking, I saw the, that discrepancy online. I thought it might be some kind of tax credit, like you had 700,000, but some kind of tax credit, you got some of the money back or something, and that made it up to you. I thought I that's what the. It, it, it surprised everybody. I'm not kidding. It really did. Yeah. And uh, actually, Mary Warnock, they had a a uh, rap party and I was there at the rap party and I was like oh I just hope it works gosh I hope it works I hope you got everything I need and Mary <laughs> said will you shut up you know you've got a good movie just relax <laughs> she was the first one to say that to certainly Wayne and Andy were going to say it but we uh, but we it opened a week before Thanksgiving and then everybody who saw it the weekend before Thanksgiving I don't know if they planned this or not had a chance to go back to school and tell everybody about it. And then it's big weekend was a three day holiday for Thanksgiving here. And then after mm -hmm. that, it sort of started to peter out because it was actually a placeholder for screens for uh, 2010. It was okay. in some pretty big theaters because they were holding the place for 2010. Mm -hmm. And then they wish they had night of the comet. Yeah, I was going to say that. That's the thing, the, the long lasting legacy of Night of the Comet, though maybe you didn't think so at the time, like it is now a, a firm cult favorite. Everybody everybody oh. knows Night of the Comet now. It's I get my daughter, uh, I, have a, I have a daughter who's uh, a producer now. Mm -hmm. And uh, in downtime, she trolls the internet for Night of the Comet stuff. <laughs> wow. sending me all the stuff. There's Night of the Comet Barbie dolls. There's a Barbie yeah. doll. I've given, I've given, I've given these two ladies dolls of themselves before. Yeah, that's right. The little guys, right? Yeah. A couple of different companies have actually made us. Yes. Yeah. Really? Yeah. As as actual dolls, they just didn't redo Barbie. No, they're of us. I would love to be Barbie. I'll show you if you if I can go off camera and show it. Go for it. Yeah, yeah. Go for it. Like me too. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, I just want to say we made millions. Yeah, the right. Did you see Kelly's background? By the way, it's great. It's really good. Yeah. Oh wow! Who made that? Somebody sent me the artist had an article done on. Uh, I contacted him and said, hey, that's my movie. He said, oh, and he sent me a bunch of these to sign. I signed them and then he could up the price for them. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, hold it right in front of you because it disappears when it's not there. Yeah, there you go. I forgot I had a background. Hold it down, 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 down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. That's so cool. Is that the box that came in? Uh huh. I haven't opened it. Can't open it. It'll be worth a fortune in 10 years. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have, I told, I told Kathy this, I have a vision oh, great. of the end of my life. And I'm on my deathbed and I've sort of got COVID-19 or something. <laughs> COVID-20. What, what friends and family I have are gathered around and some other onlookers. And just as I'm about to check out, I hear a voice in the background that says, you mean he did Night of the Comet? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's going to be it. Yeah. It is, Last it, word you ever hear. Yeah, exactly. You know, we actually okay, did okay, that. Okay, Kelly. We did that. Um, oh. uh, she's just oh. going to get some more toys. Oh, she went out. Oh, I saw. She's got some more. She's got some more toys. Um, we, uh, now, Kelly and I, when we go to conventions, people give us art fan art all the time. I have so much Night of the Comet fan art. It's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. they love it. There's a, the, so I good. think Kelly, there's a Kelly garbage pail. Yeah, garbage pail kids. Yeah. Is that? <laughs> and it's being made now. It's not from like 20 no. years. Yeah, it's all being made now. It's, that's, that's amazing. Well, that's really Kelly, cool. Get a hold of that guy who sculpted that. Thank him for those legs. <laughs> <laughs> They're Get giving you she legs, yeah. It's just like that's great. Short there, Kelly. And 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 this is this brings me on to a good question, actually. Like, like if if none of the comments was released now, made now, it, it, I think it would be a, a big hit. Um, I think the sen- the twenty first century sensibility now is more forgiving for something that's um, cross genre that mixes sci fi, horror, comedy. Because we've had it with like big films like like Scream and some other things. Like, I'm not so sure. I'm not saying. Shaun of the Dead. I love that movie. Yeah, comedy horror. That it was so special it can't be replicated. I'm just wondering because the time that we did it, Kathy and I were talking about this. The time that we did that in '84, there was the classic, and, and Kelly and Kathy may have been these actresses. Um, 24 to play 18, 24 to play 16. Mm-hmm. And um, and if you took those girls logically, the way they appear in the film and the way they react to things, the way they behave, you would probably be looking at casting 12-year-olds, I think, at this point. Because yeah, they just sort of moved on. You know, those girls were, uh, uh, they were just special. I can't think of a... There's been talk, and, and there's more talk lately. Mm-hmm. Um, MGM owns the movie, except I own part of it now too. Oh, that's great! Oh, do you? That's 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 good to know. Okay, excellent. Yeah. At least at least somebody owns some of it now. They'd be partners, and uh, they've been they've got. I mean, can't remember her name, uh, and that's my fault because of my brain. <laughs> um, got a, a director attached and she said that she wants to let loose of the comedy aspect of the thing go for the sci-fi horror aspect of the thing and you notice a lot of these things are going to streaming all come off as very dark if yeah. you look at Anna the movie Hannah and then look at the streaming series it's quite dark by comparison you know yeah. that seems to be where all this stuff gravitates to it's Roxanne I mean, Benjamin who um, was lined up to do the, the remake apparently Roxanne Benjamin, is that the lady you were thinking yeah, yeah, of? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who yeah. was, yeah, yeah. she was, yeah. yeah. She yeah. was supposed to write a new script, which was very nerve wracking. It was just like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, I just don't know uh, uh, how I got my first glimpse of what those two sisters might be like when I saw Zombieland. Ah, because yeah. The two actresses in Zombieland had that relationship and they had the kind of, you know, two girls with one brain kind of uh, relationship. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was very close to Kelly and Kathy, except that Zombieland was a straight up comedy. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it was a romp. 
Night of the Comet was a romp too, but Night of the Comet had some, in fact, Kelly and I were talking about the best review I ever read of Night of the Comet, and I just read it like a year ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, it said the endearing thing about the movie is how much the cast, creative people, totally embraced a completely stupid idea. <laughs> yeah. And I think that was you it. You got to. You got to embrace stupid ideas to make it legitimate. It's like that uh, old old saw with actors, you know, if you don't believe it, nobody else will. Yeah. I mean, there was not a moment when Kathy and Kelly, when you didn't think that they totally believed they were in that situation having and could have shows, that much yeah. fun that much fun doing everyday kind of things that that girls at that time are used to and coming into some some fairly harrowing situations there there'll be Russian roulette scene with Willie what was what was his name? Um, uh, Willie, let's see. I have a little... Oh, you got a cheat sheet. <laughs> I do. Oh, oh, he might not be on here, though. But I, oh, Ivan, Ivan Erock. Ivan, of course, of course. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. Yeah, he pulled a gun on me when he came in to read. Oh, no. <laughs> no. For sure. I said, I said to Wayne and Andy after we left, I said, no, no, no. <laughs> and he ended up on the set. <laughs> but, he, but he turned out to be um, uh, one of those characters, like the character that always emerges at Night of the Comet uh, was the zombie cop. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you who that zombie cop is, but he's in almost all yeah. of the illustrations. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the nouveau in illustrations. For mm -hmm. Hey, and there's I heard that Ivan Roth is now an assistant to Ellen DeGeneres. Oh, wow. Oh. <laughs> well, have you hear anything of Dick Rude? Dick Rude? No. Was, Dick Rude? One of those, he played one of those. He was in, uh, a lot of my crew came over from, uh, well, there goes my brain again. <laughs> I say, they came over from, and I was about to say the movie. What was the movie about repoing cars? It was out Repo Man. Repo Man, of course, repoing cars. Repo. <laughs> Dick Rude was in that, and he had one of the all-time great lines in that movie. He said, "Let's go get some sushi and do some crimes." That guy, right? <laughs> okay. Yeah, he was a Knight of the Comet. He didn't have a very big part, but uh, I really liked him a lot. He was yeah. And I didn't know Rude was a Jewish man. He was a yeah. guy who went, "Willie, she means it." Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> But what about Michael Bowen, who has gone on to do a ton of stuff? Yeah, I mean, Michael, he is a great character. Yeah, Michael was great. Michael came in and just jumped into it. He was one of the actors that just had taken the time to at least read his scene, but probably the whole script, <laughs> and just got it, you know, what it was supposed to be. You know, just jumped in and did it. It was oh, the best was kind of cast you can have, you know, when you... Because in these low-budget movies, you show up and your brain is being pulled in like eight different directions. <laughs> because you show up on these low-budget sets like this, and nothing is the way exactly that mm. you thought they would be when you were taking a shower the night before. Mm -hmm. But when you think about it, the, the cast was really incredible. I mean, Robert yeah. Belkin, Jeffrey Lewis. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it goes on and Mary, on. Michael yeah. on. I mean, yeah, it's really a solid cast. Mary Warnock, you know. Yeah. That, and, that's, and that's why it stands up, I think, because watching it now with, like, 21st century sensibilities, you're watching and you're thinking, these guys just hit it out of the park. Like, And, like, it, it's a combination of your great direction. The writing is the best writing, like, I've seen, like, in a horror film. Like, was, my favourite. Uh, was, I'm told, I was told by Wayne Crawford, who reminded me of this, um, I think he was lying. It doesn't remember, <laughs> remember correctly. But he said when he read that script, it was 165 pages long. Oh, my God. <laughs> it couldn't have been that long because they sent me home over a weekend and said, take it, take it down to 100, preferably 90. And if you mm -hmm. don't, you will. Wow. So I went home. I probably did it over a three-day weekend and took it down. So it couldn't have been quite that What did you cut out, though, Tom? What What... 
what what gems did you take out? Probably a lot because I don't miss anything in the movie now. So probably a yeah. lot of junk that didn't need to be in it. The biggest change, which I think Wayne uh, took credit for, was uh, was Kelly. Her death scene, which now is a kind of mock death scene in the movie, yeah, uh, was actually a death scene. She died right there, and then from that point on. But my wife Christy, she was on me from the second she read the script. She said, "You can't kill off that girl. You can't said, kill Kelly off." I'm trying to ground the story a little bit. She said, "I don't care. You can't do it." And uh, Wayne was uh, uh, of that mind too. And I came around to it and I said, yeah, now I'm glad I did, even though it's. <laughs> well, can, I, I was yeah, going to say, can you imagine the last scene of the movie where we're, and she didn't have that scene with yeah. the. Uh, yeah, it's a huge That yeah. DMV thing yeah. was a last minute addition, too, when I was doing that rewrite to tear everything, to tear out whatever it was 10, 20, or 30, or 40 pages, whatever wow. I was trying to get rid of. Uh, that, and the DMK thing is so. So I know you haven't seen my film host, Tom, but at the start of the at the start of the movie, it's all set on Zoom. At the very start of the movie, the Zoom login, um, the password for it is DMK in reference to um, Night of the Comet. <laughs> so a lot of people, a lot of people have like figured that out now, and we say it in interviews about how we're inspired by DMK was a, DMK was a throwaway. I just wrote it in for the for the. Uh, video game scene with Kathy in the lobby of the theater. I had just written it in because I just wanted to establish her as being uh, a obsessive compulsive type personality who didn't want to come in second place to anybody. And uh, I started having, not just Wayne and Andy, I think I don't think they ever mentioned it, but I started having crew people like Gordon, Gordon Booze. Yes, Gordon. Assistant director and my second assistant director and uh, uh, John Muto kept coming up. Well, who is DMK? What's that supposed to be, DMK? It's nothing. It's a throwaway. It's just somebody on a video screen. The gag's self-contained and over with. Is that I just don't get it. So I started thinking, huh. And that rewrite, well, that was a, that putting that on that license plate, although how the hell it got a license? <laughs> Nobody license. thinks about that. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like the it's like the underground compound. Oh, yeah. There's only like eight people down there, but they all wear name tags. <laughs> and how did they build such a place? I don't know if Kathy remembers this, but John Mudo was pulling rabbits out of hats right and left because he had like a dollar ninety-eight to make this movie, and he built that that set, um, which was the hallway corridor, supposedly this underground facility, like mm -hmm. comic book facility. And he did it as a, sorry, John, he did the best he could, but it was sort of a rather obvious forced perspective thing. Mm -hmm. and, and Jeffrey Lewis and Peter Fox were having an argument, walking down towards the forced perspective. And stopped because there was a door conveniently <laughs> just there. And they turned, they went into that door. And then we did a take where they were walking, and Kathy looked in the back of the set, the Force Perspective set, which mm -hmm. made her head look like that. And she said, Do you remember this, Kathy? We were this is how cheap boy these uh, these sets were. The whole production was this way. Um, you went and you were trying to get figure out which door you could get out, and you went and jiggled the door, and she went and, go, and she pulled. <laughs> <laughs> plastic handle. I remember that. <laughs> and, I've done that twice in my career, actually. That was another movie. I was struggling with it. The whole thing. It was like, oh. You know, and this is, <laughs> this is how um, I, uh, Charles Champlin reviewed it in the Times when it first came out. Uh, a real Valentine of a, of a review. And he was talking about the scene where Kathy and Kelly are escaping the underground forced perspective set. And uh, he said, now, he said, this is the brilliance of Tom's directing. Because a normal director would have had him doing the Charlie's Angels scene. They would have come around and pointing and going like that and pointing. And Kelly would have been coming out of the elevator and pointing her gun this way and pointing her gun that way. And he said, no, he just chose to do it on her feet. 
It was mm -hmm. just on her feet. And she was humming to herself as she came out of the... I know, that was... Well, and I said, yes, that's me. I got asked about that several times. I said, yes, that's me. That's all me. Oh, there, there were a lot of foot shots in that movie. Anyway. I think Arthur Albert. That has, been, that has been mentioned to me on more than one occasion. Oh, really? It's the Tarantino-type deal thing. Okay, I see. <laughs> the thing about this was, Kathy, uh, you were the last actress on that set because we the sets were built at Raleigh Studios um, in Hollywood. And... Um, they made the cheapy, low-budget producer deal with them, a day to build, two days to shoot, and a day to tear it down. But of course, low-budget producers are going to shoot during the build. They get a little piece of set, so they can start shooting during the build. They'll shoot during the shoot days, and they'll shoot during the teardown. So Kathy's shooting, and literally the set is being torn down around <laughs> us as we're shooting <laughs> and Kathy's there and, she, and and Arthur Albert the uh the DP was smoking up the set so you couldn't see the whole walls were missing of the set wow. and, Kathy, and <laughs> people were taking down lights so Kathy had to creep around and I just talked to her <laughs> because we didn't even record sound she had nothing to say anyway and we had to get one of those one shot we had to get it one shot because that was the last wall and a side wall to be torn down and so i said okay uh kathy action kathy comes creeping in and 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 arthur uh says find the flashlight kathy find the flashlight <laughs> and so she took it Good, good soap opera actress as she was. And, and also knowing the situation with the lighting, she had it pointed at her face when she turned it on. So she did this, oh, look. <laughs> so she knew it was her. And she said, okay, Kathy, you're creeping around. And then suddenly you see it. And if you look close, really close, see, okay, Kathy, suddenly you see it. She says, what? <laughs> <laughs> I, said, I don't know, but it's pretty scary. And she goes, What am I looking at? That's the last shot. Got kicked out. But the point about Kelly's shoes and Kelly's feet was those weren't even Kelly's feet. They were no. Kelly's shoes. Oh. So, uh, they were your feet? Was because what what uh, <laughs> what uh, the critics didn't know that were like praising that scene was that I planned to shoot it like Charlie's Angels. I just was going to do it that way. <laughs> I was going to do it that way, but there was no time to shoot it. Right. The set literally fell down and we were out the door. What I still had, I mean, it's director's nightmare. You're coming away with stuff you know you have to have. Mm -hmm. So uh, about three weeks later, we had a couple of pieces of flat left. We had a, a, an airy BL that we had rented um, to shoot. And, and we had some short ends, which are just ends left over from production. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, Arthur Albert came in we got a skateboard and we clamped the camera to the skateboard oh. and we set up what looked like a door to an elevator I mean it could be you don't know. Yeah. And, and we and, and it wasn't Kelly it was whoever Andy's it was Andy's girlfriend girlfriend at the time we stuffed her feet into those shoes she was only a little bit larger than I was but those are her legs in the cop car those are her feet, and those are her hands in the radio station. Well, yeah, yeah, because, uh, yeah. You can always tell a low-budget production when one of the producers' girlfriends are. Yeah, 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 yeah. But anyway, we did it with the camera on a skateboard, and I said, "Oh man, this is terrible." It works. It works. And then we got it. We got it cut into the movie, and we went, "Okay." So yeah. was, as I recall, they got their Charlie's Angels moment at one point. Anyway. <laughs> We did. We came out and we went. Yeah, we each yeah, went yeah, one yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. And so, so um, Kelly and Kathy, you do conventions quite, uh, quite a lot. Have you seen a rise in the amount of um, Night of the Comet fans over the years? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. People what do you put come, that down to? Well, people come dressed as us. They cosplay as us. <laughs> um, they love that cheerleading outfit. They always yeah. want to make a lot of guys show up in the cheerleading outfit. <laughs> um, I just think, well, it had a second life when it came on cable because yeah. everybody saw it because they probably bought it for, and so they ran it a lot. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, and so that was a thing because you're actually in the person, the people's houses all the time. Yeah. And they, they feel like they know you. If you're mm-hmm. on TV, they feel like they know you. And then uh, many people have said, you were such an example of a strong woman that I wanted my my daughter to see this movie because she... she and a lot of a lot of young women have said to me too. When I saw you guys, I knew that I didn't have to be a victim. Yeah, and I well, take that. That's that's amazing. You know that's great. The PR people, when they were telling me they didn't think the movie was going to do squat, and and I didn't have the background to argue with them, except I I liked it, and um, they said, "Yeah, see, because it's it's a it's a date night movie. It's a drive-in movie." And guys aren't going to want to be taking their girls to see a movie where the girls don't need guys. And <laughs> I told her, I said, you know what? Oh. You've got to broaden out your thinking. I said, yeah. because I think girls are going to want to be those girls. And I think guys are going to want to date those girls. Yeah. Exactly. That's that the way it was. And that's what they do. You see a lot of, you see a lot of movies where you have strong women characters in, in movies and they lose their uh, femininity. Yeah, they, yeah, they they lose the they lose the feminine angle on mm-hmm. everything. Like you can be you can be flirtatious, you can be sexy if you want to be. That's fine, and you can still be completely self reliant. Mm-hmm. And that's like what a lot of people. Uh, uh, I mean, they're trying to keep, create, the, uh, create those kind of characters. Yeah. Right. I mean, you have all these female superheroes that are just mm-hmm. acting like a bunch of guys with guns, yeah. you know, running yeah. after and beating everybody up. It's like yeah. it, it really takes the sort of the, the female aspects out of being a female character, which it, it, I, it makes me so crazy because the powers that be, all they want to do is make money. So there's a formula and they refuse mm-hmm. to near from that formula but i'm telling you i agree with you tom at these conventions just as many if not more men come up and say yeah. oh god you were so great at that movie we just yeah, love it yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and women as well feel empowered by it and it's but it, it to me when i did this movie i didn't even think about it i just kind of liked the character because yeah. That's a, you just, just like the characters. I mean, that's what, what you like the characters and without, I mean, I tried to sit down. I don't know if you remember that hellish night. I tried to sit down with you and Robert and go through the script and like that boy. <laughs> I said, I'm never doing that again. Because <laughs> yeah. clearly, clearly you knew the character, you know, you'd already been through the script three or four or five times and uh, we're bringing whatever you're bringing to it. And Robert, I think, had an appointment he had to get to. <laughs> so he was looking for the door. And after that, I just decided, you know, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. You just tap into what these girls want to do, try and shape them a little bit. Like I said, build a corral around them so they don't go off the wall. But let them have their lead. Mm-hmm. And if you look at Kelly, you know, in the scene where Kathy comes in uh, to the house looking around and Kelly does that great where they first come face to face, they both scream and jump back. And then Kelly goes and starts looking at her teeth and her mirror and talking about how, you know, her dad hopes nothing get messed up with her teeth and whatever the lines were. Mm-hmm. I was just watching that just I was being entertained. I thought, okay, <laughs> you know, and Kelly was rocking back on her feet and coming up and so on. And then I think, Kelly, you came up with the Muffy gag. I think you did. I don't know if that was originally in the script. Remember it the puppy on the carpet? Oh, nice. And it wasn't, it wasn't and in the script, yeah. I might say, Muffy? <laughs> I think, because what we were talking about was I said, gee, I need a, you know, Kathy's already gone out of the house. You're there. You're, she's acting weird. You're trying to think, put all this together in your head. And we kind of need a button for you by, when you're there, you know, kind of following her out the door. And that was it. I think I think uh, you came up with it. John Mudo was right there, as always, with brick dust. And somebody, <laughs> somebody got sent to the dog leash. 
I yeah, somebody said we I, went to the store to get a dog collar because I said I like it to look more like a dog. And Don started like trying to fashion a dog out of the brick dust. <laughs> and I said, no, so no, funny. That's not work. And so somebody ran out to the Alpha Beta or something and got a dog collar and came back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, was your idea. I don't rem- I don't remember having that idea, but I do remember that in in subsequent shots because when we shot the master, we hadn't thought of it yet. So, and I had the, the leash around my neck. Yeah. And everyone said, but she didn't have that leash and people are going to notice that. And everybody said, so what? Yeah. <laughs> uh, they got that. a blooper, so what? Who cares? A screening, uh, it was a low budget film symposium or something. Back when the movie was first uh, released. And uh, I was there with some other people on stage. And uh, Charles Champlin was there and a couple of other critics. And we were talking, there was a full auditorium. And there was some guy that was like, waving his hand, waving his hand. And I said, yeah, sure, what? And he said, if it was steel that was protecting them from the comet, I mean, and she was in a lawn storage shed, I mean, it wouldn't have been sealed the comet wasn't airtight. The same thing with projection booth. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I said, I wish I could take you and bump you onto the rails. Yeah. Off the rails that's right your now. issue with this movie. Yeah, yeah, that's the one thing you have a problem with, yeah. yeah um, I, said, I, I think I said to him, so what? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because, because when you've got good characters on the screen, I mean... I've said this about Night of the Comet time and time again. Audiences come into a theater wanting to believe. Mm -hmm. They just do. And in the first 10 minutes, you have to go way out of your way to lose them. But if you got them through the first 10 minutes and they bought into it, they bought into the characters, then then you really have to really screw up somewhere to lose them. And these girls had them from... From the very start, from the very start where Kelly gets slugged by Sharon Farrell. Oh <laughs> does that back over flip into the television set. I'm proud oh, of that to this day. I love that flip. Yeah. <laughs> that is such a great scene. You have all the great iconic scenes. You've got all the great lines. And it, was so, it was so unexpected for the audience. It was always a laugh because whatever <laughs> they were expecting was going to happen, like just the slap fest. They thought that was going to be the gag. Right, yeah. She slaps Kelly's, Kelly slaps her back and puts her hands on her hips. And then she looks at her and goes, and knocks her, puts her back in. And then she lands and, in front of the television with that guy talking about yeah. New Newfoundland. It was, it was classic. It was so classic. Good. That was all, uh, they were going out. They shot that uh, little piece with him out on uh, Hollywood Boulevard. It's supposed uh-huh. to be New York. And we the whole movie is supposed to take place at Christmas because we thought, John Mudo and I thought that because we'd be shooting during the holiday season. And John Mudo and I thought that there's going to be Christmas decorations up. Mm-hmm. We don't have the time or the money to be tearing down things. You had it a little bit inside we'll the mall. There were some Christmas trees in the mall. Yeah, hmm. we'll just make it Christmas. Yeah. And, and speaking of that mall, holy moly, how did we ever get to do that? <laughs> yeah. you know, Bill Fay was our locations guy in that movie. And how, because Wayne and Andy, low budget guys that they were, they were taking me to Ross Dress for Less, mm-hmm. you know, and they were saying, now she could be here and she could be there behind the low racks, you know, <laughs> hiding behind the low racks. And I, them, I said, you know, there's just not going to work. It's not Sam gonna and Reggie work. wouldn't be caught dead, dead in a Ross Dress for Less. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah, we have the, the whole board. city. Let's go to Ross Dress for Less. And they said, well, you got to figure out how to do it. because, And somehow Bill Fay. He came up with that. He came up with that uh, Bullock's Wilshire. Yeah. I, I mean, if that was my department store, I would have never let us in. Yeah. They had used that Sherman Oaks Galleria for several other films, so they were kind of used to I've been in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but when you think about it, we were coming in there when they were closed. We were having a, a gunfight, and in those days, we, did, we, do, we were doing actual, we were shooting blanks. Uh, actually from a gun. We didn't have the ability to do optical gun flashes mm-hmm. like that in those days. 
And we blew off this hand grenade and we did it. We did it at the very end when Kathy, when Kathy takes aim and then yeah. fires and blows off the head of this man. It is really yeah. cheap void, like, like goodwill. But they had put a hand grenade inside the neck of this thing. And, <laughs> and, and I was, I was in lo- on location, it. like on, on set, or was it done? It was all on set. It was right there. Oh, the, the explosions all as well. Wow. Set. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we couldn't do anything in post. We didn't have the money to do any effects in post. But oh, they wow. blew off that thing. We waited. And this was Wayne and Andy's low budget producers. They waited to, that was going to be the last shot of the night. We're heading for the door. And it was great that it was because those mannequins are made out of uh, fiberglass. Mm-hmm. And oh. blew it off, fiberglass stuff went all over the place. And here's all of these high priced clothes. I mean, they had draped them and tried to protect them and everything. But when that thing popped off, there was a haze. <laughs> and I said, well, I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Just glossy. <laughs> yeah. But as far as I know, they never uh, they never complained. I mean, Bill had a good crew and they cleaned up really well. So mm-hmm. they and and I don't think anybody from the store, there must have been somebody from the store, but we were shooting up those were real Mac tens that the squirrels were handling. Yeah. And they just were loaded with blanks, which accounted for the jamming. Yeah. Well, I, I could talk to, to you guys all day and all night about Night of the oh, Comet. But like, <laughs> and you're going to. Okay, well, yeah, let's, let's, go, let's go a bit longer then. Okay. So, I'm like. Off and I'll talk to Kelly and Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we can, we can stop the recording and keep, and keep speaking for a, for a second. Um, so, I just want to say thank you guys for coming on to uh, this episode of Jed Talks. Um, Kelly and Kathy have been on my podcast before, so we know it, their version of everything. So, so, it's great. But I wanted to have all of you guys together because I just think it's like really special. Well, and I think. Yeah, and uh, Tom, th- thanks so much for for coming on. Um, I don't know if you do do many podcasts, but um, you're welcome on mine any any time you like. Um, what about and, next week? Yeah, that, that that's fine. <laughs> yeah. And and as soon as I stop pressing record, we can we can talk about this remake that you know all about and we we, we want to know about. So listen, I don't know anything about it really. I'm okay, completely out of those negotiations. But okay, all I know is that. I want to press you. I'll, I'll press you in a second, Tom. Uh, well, thanks very much, guys. And uh, yeah, these are the guys from, from Night of the Comet. Kelly Maroney, uh, Catherine Mary Stewart, and Tom Eberhardt. Thanks for coming and see you guys next week. Thanks, Thank you, Jen. You're awesome. Thank you for having awesome. us. And nice to see you guys again. Yeah, I see you too. Nice to see you.